Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Channing Hamlet is a managing director at Objective Investment Banking and Valuation focused on leading the firm's valuation advisory service practice and transaction execution for its investment banking services practice. Mr. Hamlet is a results-driven executive that has 30-plus years of experience advising owners on management issues, transaction execution, and business valuation. He's able to draw on a diverse background that includes direct management experience, as well as strategy consulting, private equity investing, investment banking, and business appraisal experience to advise his clients. He's very involved in the LA and San Diego business communities. He's spoken at all kinds of organizations, including uh, EO, which I've been a member of for a long time, and we I've had EO conversations, and he's got all kinds of awards, including most recently chosen as the investment banking visionary for 2022 and 2021 in uh, Banking and Finance Magazine. You can check out the rest of his accolades and credentials on the on, in the show notes. But I am super excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'll have to have you follow me around so you can introduce me wherever I go. That was yeah. Great. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I, I I can be uh, Channing Hamlet's t- a hype man. Yeah. Um, so, Channing, before we get into all the great stuff you do in the in the investment banking, the valuation areas, and the experience you have with deals, and you know maybe some good stories, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is at that age, it wasn't probably wasn't an investment banker and valuation expert. But you tell me, it's it's an interesting question, and it probably changed. It probably changed by the week. I was I was a kid that didn't enjoy doing anything indoors. If you gave me the choice between piano lessons or, you know, jumping dirt bikes across a creek or doing this or doing that, I was like outdoors. So I always yeah. thought I'd do something outdoors. However, my parents were both pretty into business, and my dad was a pretty successful executive, and he always. He, he frequently would have out-of-town visitors and bring people over to the house for dinner. And so a lot of the family dinners were centered around people that were, you know, talking about a business deal or a business issue or transaction or something like that. And so I grew up a little bit in the sort of transaction and business environment, and probably that planted the seed to get me where I am today. So even as a little kid, did you pay attention to those conversations or, you know, because some kids are like done with dinner, can I go watch my program, right? You know, yeah, you, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I, frankly, I think I, I don't feel like I had a lot of choice in leaving yeah. the dinner table early. It was, it was back yeah. in the day where you were seen and not heard or whatever. So yeah. <laughs> I know. I didn't it. have my, I didn't have my iPhone <laughs> under the table where I could play games at dinner. So, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. And look, one other question, looking back, what was your first deal that you can remember of any type? It could be something 
small when you're, you know, a, a youngster or it could be early in your career or whatever comes to mind. You know, one of the, one of the ones that, one of the ones that comes to mind is I, I worked for a couple of years at a consulting firm and then through a kind of an interesting turn of events, got involved in investment banking. And the second, the consulting firm I worked for, our clients were Fortune 50 companies. And so we were doing presentations to the CEO or board of directors. And these were kind of large companies that were slow moving and fairly bureaucratic. And then I got involved at Leg Mason doing M&A. And the guys I worked for at the time had a really strong family-oriented business, family business practice. And the second transaction I worked on was a third-generation family business that had kind of fallen on hard times. And we were hired to sell the company. And it was a really complicated and difficult transaction. I won't bore you with all the issues that came up, but... At the closing dinner, the patriarch of the family pulled me aside and he kind of said, look, I, I really appreciate all the hard work you and your firm did. You, you guys changed our family's life and you know we're really grateful for you. And I'm pretty sure he said that to everybody. And it was like kind of a throwaway comment after dinner or whatever, but it, it really kind of hit me. It's like, you know, I really like this working with these smaller family companies where we can come in and make a difference. Like it feels good and, you know, we can really make a difference. And I was kind of like hooked on working with smaller companies and entrepreneurs and, you know, using the skills to, to help them. So that, that moment is kind of a memorable moment, you know, a memorable moment for me and was sort of formative in the direction of my career at some level, I think. Love it. Love it. So, yeah, so let's, let's probably, let's talk about that now. So are those the types of clients you, you know, who are you working with? Who's your ideal client? And give us the, I mean, obviously we mentioned the investment banking and evaluation services, but, you know, give us the full scope of, of yeah. the kind of services. Yeah. Our, our firm now is, we have two practices. We have a business valuation practice where we're kind of a full service appraisal company. We have a wide, you know, a wide range of clients that, that we serve there from, you know, from very small companies to public companies. And it's, it's a full service valuation practice. And then our investment banking practice, we've really specialized and we, we focus on what I would say lower middle market transactions. Most of our transactions are between kind of 10 to 25 million in value at the low end up to maybe a hundred, 150 million in value at the high end. The largest transaction our firm has closed is about half a billion, but you know, typically they're in the 50 to 75 million range. And so our. Our clients are typically either family-owned businesses that pass from one generation to the next and or founder-owner, non-institutionally owned, non-institutionally owned companies. And, you know, they hire us to help manage the process to exit and get their company sold. Yeah. So, and, and you know, I love that space as well. I mean, really, that's where we do most of our deals as well. I, like you, we've done some bigger ones, but, you know, the, you know, the sweet spot, I mean, I'm thinking about deals we did this year, which was a lot of them. Yeah. And most of them were somewhere, you know, we did a deal as small as 4 million on the buy side because, you know, we, we represented the buyer, but most of the other deals were in the 25 to $90 million range. You know, I'm thinking about about six of them right in that range that we did in the last second half of the year. So yeah, that's a, that's, you know, that's a fun range, but you know, it also brings up different, different issues, right? Because you're representing and uh, working with successful entrepreneurs, obviously they're not going to get valuations in the tens of millions if they're not successful. But at the same time, they don't have the kind of sophisticated deal teams and prep and 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 things that you know bigger companies that sell do, right? 
So talk a little bit about, you know, in addition to obviously packaging and shopping and putting it together and creating a process and doing the best deal, like what is it specific to this market, the additional things that you bring that help, let's call them non-professional sellers, right, to get deals done? You know, it's been interesting. It's been interesting how the market's changed over the last 20, kind of 20, 20, 25 years. I think that the buyers have kind of continued to raise the standards that they're, that they're looking for. Yep. You know, in the, in the mid 1990s, private equity firms were paying four to four to six times EBITDA for companies. It was rare that a company sold for north of six, a middle market company sold for north of six times EBITDA. Yep. And I think in that, as I look back in that environment, the private equity firms came in and really created value in a number of areas. But one area was kind of coming in and professionalizing and cleaning up the company. And and they were willing to deal with, you know, accounting issues, personnel issues, this issue, that issue. And fast forward 25 years, you know, we've seen multiples double. Yep. We've seen multiples double, I think, you know, the good companies. Uh, until the recent economic hiccup, which I'm sure we'll talk about, good companies were selling for te- 10 to 12 to 14 times even. Yeah, I was about to say, I did the last deal. I did, I did a 14, you know, a deal of yeah. 14, you know, yeah. you know, plus, you know, plus depending on the market and sure. the dynamics of the company. But what we've seen is that the, the buyers have very high standards now. And so the level yeah. of preparation necessary the level of preparation necessary to successfully sell a company for a premium now is very significantly different than it's been over the past, you know, over the past 25 years. And so what we've seen in our market and, you know, Corey, I think you see this as well is a lot of these companies are that we're working with are, you know, smaller companies. They don't have a full management team. They don't necessarily have the need or the requirement for audited financial statements that in the day-to-day running of their business, they can get by with, you know, cutting some corners and being practical and not having every T crossed and I dotted. And many of these business owners that come to us don't fully understand what it takes to sell their company for a premium and how clean they have to be. And so we've, over the last couple of years, five to 10 years, I've spent more and more time counseling people pre-sale on how important it is to have clean accounting, how important it is to have this, how important it is to have that. So that by the time they show up ready to sell, you know, that they're ready and we're not like quote unquote, you know, fixing the airplane while we're flying it. If that's a good, you know, if that's a good, if that's a good analogy. And I think one of the things that, one of the things that, that I'm really excited about is you know, helping people really understand what it takes to sell for a premium so that by the time they show up to us or any other investment bank, you know, there's actually a product or an asset there that can be sold, that can be sold for a premium and they don't have any of these risk factors or fatal flaws that either cause them to, you know, not be able to sell their company or retain too much liability or have big earnouts or, you know, not get a premium valuation. And so I think more and more we're seeing people take the time and effort to do the preparation necessary so that they can get a premium. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely second that. You know, we, we've seen that same evolution and obviously we get involved in helping them pre-prep on the legal due diligence side. Mm-hmm. You know, you, accountants should be helping them pre-prep on the, on the accounting and, you know, tax financial side. And obviously, you know, guys like you, you know, quarterback that process to help them really, you know, be presented professionally. 
And listen, it, it, there are things now that would kill your deal that wouldn't have killed your deal in the 90s or are going to cost you significantly on valuation or deal structure. Yeah. No question. Exactly. No question. You know, and it's, it's interesting. One of the things, one of the things that we do is, you know, it does take nine, nine months plus or minus to sell a company. So, you know, it's January, 2023 right now. If we were to start a sale process for a company right now, you know, we would want to be selling the company based on a multiple of their 2023 projected financials, most likely either revenue or EBITDA. What that means is from a, just from a financial standpoint, that means a company needs to have, you know, really good, well thought out financial projections so that we can sit down with a buyer and look them in the eye and have the supporting detail on the track record so that the projections are believable and achievable so that we can get people to pay based on the future results, not based on the past results. Mm -hmm. And the number of companies that I've worked with that like either don't do budgets or don't take the budgeting process very seriously or don't see a need for it. You know, it's very, very difficult when we get hired to come in to do a sale process to be the first person or the first team that's ever put a financial projection together and have it, you know, really stand up to scrutiny. And so that's something that when companies come to us and they have a, you know, a budgeting process, they understand the drivers of their business. They can say, look, if we do this in sales and we do this in operations, we do this here and we do this there, and this is how it all rolls into our financials. And I know that because I did send sales calls in January or whatever it is, I'm going to hit X in revenue for this year. When, when people, when companies really have that dialed in, it's a hell of a lot easier to sell their company based on the projected results rather than like, oh, hey, this is the first time we ever did a budget. I think revenue is going to be X. And if revenue is X, we're going to do Y in profit. Like that makes it a lot, just a lot trickier. And that's just kind of one example of, you know, the types of preparation that can really help. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So, you know, you talk about this conversation of getting a premium evaluation and certainly what you just talked about is one of the ways. Do you have one or two others you want to mention in terms of what companies can do to get a premium valuation? Yeah. You know, I think there, there's two things that, that there's two things that are going on in a, a sale process. And when we get introduced to companies that we think about taking on as a client, you know, we look at the factors that just make the company saleable or not saleable. And then we also look at the, the, the things that are kind of value drivers in the business. And it, in terms of the value drivers, you know, I, I think the, the, the biggest one is the, the, the couple that come to mind right away. One is understanding what drives value in that particular sector for that particular company. Yep. So in the in the nineties, just as an example, in the nineties, there was a roll up going on in the printing industry. And we sold a commercial we we sold a commercial printing business for, you know, very nice company for seven and a half times EBITDA. And we had set, we had six or seven offers from all the companies that were doing consolidations and had this like really competitive auction. 15 years later, I got hired by a printing company that arguably was a better company with a better client base, better technology, better, 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 but the buyers weren't there to support it. And so this gentleman built a really nice business, but it wasn't, he didn't really spend the time understanding what drives value in his industry. And so created a situation where it wasn't saleable at a premium where had, you know, 15 years earlier, what he built would have been saleable at a high premium. So every industry has um, different things. And so I think sort of 
doing the research and sticking your head up and looking around at what's going on, what drives value, who's going to buy this thing, you know, what do I need to build to to build, you know, A, I need to build a good business and B, I need to build something that's valuable. I think that's one value driver. Yeah. It's different for different companies. It's different for different sectors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes some work and thought to figure it out. I think that's one, that's one thing that's like really critically important. And then I think the second thing is trying to engineer or build in predictability into the business, whether it's recurring revenue, having more predictable revenue streams, understanding if I do this in January, it gets me here and systematizing and making the business predictable. I think those are two things that are, you know, really, really important value drivers beyond the obvious of have more revenue or have more EBITDA. Uh, but the, again, like just understanding what drives value in your specific sector and then making the business as predictable as possible. And then the third one, and this is something that we spend a lot of time with our clients on is, is understanding what their sort of differentiation is or, or unique or special or, or special sauce. You know, a lot of, a lot of business owners come to us and they're like, oh, hey, my company makes, you know, widgets. And it's like, well, no one really wants to buy you because you're a widget manufacturer. They want to buy you because you're the best widget manufacturer for this particular purpose. And here's why you're better than the competition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the more clear business owners and managers are on that and they build that into their strategy, the more successful their business will be that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, those kind of three things that take some real thought and effort can make a huge difference. And they're not something you can, you know, wake up on Monday morning and implement by Wednesday. They take, you know, they take some time and they take some time and thought and effort. Yeah. You know, I mean, listen, there's a concept that those of us in the deal space know where, you know, I, or, and, and, you know, it's something that people say in the entrepreneurial space, but only a, a percentage of companies that do it. And that is, you know, that it makes sense to build your businesses if you're going to sell it, whether you're going to sell it or not, right? Because the things that you would do for that, I mean, the things that you talked about, whether it's, you know, creating pr more predictable, you know, income through recurring revenue or subscription, mm -hmm. whatever it is, whether it's, you know, creating a clear value proposition that distinguishes yourself from the competition, all of that stuff's going to help you even if you never sell, right? So it really makes sense. And like you said, you can't do it in, in days or weeks or even even really months, some of these things. Some of these things are really most effectively done for years. So you can ask, so actually the the buyer can see that track record of, right, that recurring mm -hmm. revenue or that, you know, the market's response to that value proposition. I, and, you know, it's interesting. I worked at a private equity firm early in my career. And, you know, while I was there, I was deeply involved in buying six companies and the firm bought north of 20. While I was there with the companies I was involved in, like we would we would make the investment or make the acquisition. And one of the first meetings we would have with management is like, hey, here are, you know, let's come out of this meeting with here are the seven or eight things or five or six things that we think are going to drive value long-term. And then we would, we would sort of force the management team or suggest to the management team or request that the management team kind of put together a dashboard of those things. And then we would look at them at the board meetings and talk and talk about them. And so that was a way to get management focused on the value drivers in the business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the fund that I worked for had a top quartile return. And I think it, I think, you know, yes, we made good investments and yada, 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 but I think getting 
the management teams focused on sort of the few kind of core key things that they should be working on to build the value of the company made a big difference. I have yet to walk into a, a private company and, and have them have any sort of dashboard or set of metrics or thought about what drives value. Yeah. And it, I just, I find that really interesting that, you know, the private equity firms do it. And despite what you hear, despite the rumors you hear about private equity firms, you know, they've attracted a bazillion dollars over the last 10 years because they're making money and they're making money because they focus on, they get the companies focused on creating value. I just always find it interesting that the private companies and you know, sort of non-institutional businesses don't really spend a little bit more time thinking that way. Yeah, you know, it's true. And listen, to some extent, that's what uh, actually helps some deals get done is the fact that there are more professional buyers who can see the additional opportunities, right? So they can pay. Yeah. And, th and that's why they, you know, they can pay these higher multiples. You know, they, they, they can pay what is a, you know, a fair multiple, a good multiple for, for the existing business. But there's a gap where they see where they could, they can, you know, increase enterprise value significantly through yeah. whether it's recurring revenue opportunities, additional markets, you know, whatever it is. And that's what makes it more attractive to the, to the buyers. And so, you know, it is a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, of a difference. I mean, if the private, co if the smaller companies were so efficient and they taking advantage of all that stuff, they'd be better off. But at the same time, you wouldn't have that, you know, the buyers like when they see a business, right? Where they say, oh, that's a good yeah. business. And you know what? Yeah. We can do this on top of that and really, you know, and really have it become multiples of what it is. Exactly. Good stuff. So I want to just spend a couple of minutes because because I, I do all I want I do want to get more specifically over to the valuation side of things, mainly because we we it's been a while since we spoke more specifically on the podcast about valuation, and we've done more on the investment banking side. But before we go there, I do want to get you a view. You know, you alluded to it earlier. I mean, obviously, we've had a heck of a good run. Private equities had a heck of a good run. Investment bankers have had a good run. Deal lawyers have had a heck of a good run. You know, companies that you know sellers and and multiples. And at the same time, while it's still, you know, there still seems to be deal volume and plenty of money around, you have some headwinds, right? You know, inflation, interest, cost of capital has gone up significantly. Concerns about economy recession, you know, all the all this stuff that goes around. What are you seeing in, in as far as its impact? In, in listen, we're, none of us have a crystal ball, and I, you know, I mean, you might have a view what you think is going to happen. We don't know for sure, but. Well, certainly, you know, what's happening, what are you seeing about currently the, the impact, if anything, on deal volume, deal structures, deal valuation, and also, you know, what what are you thinking we're seeing, the, you know, we're recording this in January, probably won't be at least till, till March, but, um, you know, what are we looking at in 2020? Yes, I got to be, I got to be careful what I say, because people love the benefit of hindsight by the time they, exactly. you know, I, I do have the same kind of like cracked and broken, cloudy crystal ball that, that you're using. But one of the things, one of the things that, that we've seen, and we closed a fairly sizable transaction in November and the, the, the buyer was having trouble arranging bank financing. And, you know, they, they kept saying to us, Hey, we're going to have bank term sheets for the banks next week, next week, next week, next week. And, you know, finally we got with our client and it's like, look, we want to get this transaction. We like the transaction. We want to get it closed before anything else changes in the market. And so we went to the buyer and offered to do seller financing. Mm. And so this, this private equity transaction that we closed in November 
was closed without any third-party financing. It was closed. And again, I think there was a little bit of a unique structure here that made it workable, but but our our client put a third of the money that they took out of the company back in in the form of a seller note. Yep. And what was interesting is the seller note, I believe, is at a 10% interest rate and it has escalators going forward. And so my my client is sitting there like, hey, I'm getting all this money. The the uh, the economy is so volatile. I don't know where to invest it anyway. And and it's and so I can take part of it and invest it at a 10% interest rate in a company that I'm going to continue to run and be senior to everybody else. Like that's a no-brainer. Yeah. And so as I've as I've talked to my other buddies at other investment banking firms and private equity firms, I think more and more people are starting to see kind of clever and creative deal structures to work a to to work around higher, you know, higher interest costs, which is which is one thing that you know I saw in general. And I think that I think that we'll continue to see. But I think generally speaking, you know, when you see a higher cost of capital environment with interest rates going up, that's gonna that's gonna that's going to kind of depress valuations a bit. And and again, you know, when you when you basically say valuations are depressed compared to 2021, you know, you're comparing valuations to like an absolute peak. Yes. So it seems to me they might go back to 2015, 2016, 2017 levels, which are still robust relative relative to historical norms. And then the second thing, the second thing that we're seeing is I think that investors are being a little bit more picky about which sectors and which companies they invest in the are the consumer space i think there's a lot of concern about consumer spending and so the consumer space seems to be you know seems to be a, a little bit tougher the 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 b2b the b2b companies um the b2b companies seem to be doing well our in our manufacturing group we have a thesis that because of a lot of the supply chain issues and global instability, a lot of man- more and more manufacturing is going to come back to the United States, which is going to create some M&A work. We're, you know, our, our software and tech group is like crazy busy. Our business services group in certain sectors is, is crazy busy. And so there's, there's some sector, um, sector specific stuff going on. And so I kind of feel like, the, I kind of feel like well, I missed 2021 because that was a very, very robust M&A market. I kind of feel like we're going to be back to 2018, 2019, you know, 2018, 2019 levels. And then the the last thing that I see is private equity has raised so much money over the last decade. And the way private equity is structurally set up, it's kind of a use it or lose it. Yeah, they, they have um, to deploy capital. It's kind of a use it or lose it thing. And so they've got to continue to deploy capital. Yeah. And, you know, they're not dummies and they're not going to just willy nilly deploy it. But there is a supply and demand imbalance in terms of there's been a lot of capital and deal flow is slowing down, appears to be slowing down a little bit. And so that should, that should put some upward pressure on, you know, multiples and in the, in the deal market. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. There's, you know, economic volatility and interest rates and inflation on one side, and there's still a bit massive availability of capital on the other side. 
And so it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out, but I'm cautiously optimistic about, you know, cautiously optimistic about the year. And we're also, our firm is also seeing, we spoke to a lot of companies who kind of in February, March, April, May last year, they kind of decided, hey, I'm not going to start a sale process into an uncertain economic environment. We want to revisit next year. And we've already seen a lot of companies reaching out to us in December and this week, you know, wanting to get together and, you know, think about doing something this year. And so I feel like we're going to have, I feel like it'll be tricky, but there's some areas where there are tailwinds. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, listen, I agree with that. And, and, you know, there's some interesting factors that I try to remind people of, even with interest rates going up, like, you know, you mentioned that, all right, valuations are down from peak 21, early 22, whatever valuations, but they're still comparatively pretty good, right? You got to keep that in mind. And even with interest rates, I mean, interest rates are not that high historically. I mean, the truth of the matter is not that interest rates are high. We were just in an artificially low interest rate environment for a, a historically yeah. long period of time. You know, I God, I remember when interest rates were in the teens in the 70s. I'm not saying that that's, you know, the norm, but even, you know, they're not bad. They're just bad compared to what we got used to in the last in the last decade. You know, yeah. in, in year 2000, when my wife and I bought our first house, I our interest rate was 8.75%. Yeah. And so, you know, like it's, they're still low relative to that. Yeah, exactly. So, yes. you know, listen, I think we all know markets take time to adjust when there's changing circumstances. And I'm not saying that the cost of capital, you know, going up as rapidly as it, as it has, it doesn't have an impact, you know, but then people sort of get used to it and things get normalized, deals get repriced, right? And then the market starts, starts going along again. I Yeah. And I, I think, th- I think there's also an element of like business owners kind of there's a there's a demographic thing going on where the yeah. baby boomers are aging out. And I think there's a psychological element of like people kind of g- going through the different stages of grief. But it's like, hey, I missed my window to sell in 2021 at an all-time high. Now I'm operating my company in a tougher environment. My choice now is to operate in this really tough, uncertain environment or to sell my company for less than it would have gotten in 2021, but I still need to sell my company for the f- following reasons. And so I, I think, I think things will kind of normalize what I've seen over the last 25, 30 years during periods of extreme change and uncertainty. That's when the market slows down, but the market's been strong. The M&A market has been good during periods, d- during periods of stability. So hopefully we're coming into. You know, hopefully we're coming into like a new normal or whatever you want to call it. So we'll, we'll see. Sounds good. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So let's talk a little bit more on the valuation side, right? Because, you know, there are most investment banking firms do, you know, do, do some sort of valuation work, but this is, this is a particular strength of you and your firm. You know, it's like, it's a significant area, what you do in addition the investment banking. So tell us a little bit more more about that and, and talk to us about what you've seen in terms of valuations. I mean, you mentioned most of our listeners are pretty sophisticated, but we have some, you know, this, our listeners have expanded so much 
you know, I've, I've mentioned recently, I remember the days when I first started this thing and I had 60 or 80 people listen to an episode and now we got, you know, 9,000 or 10, you know, we got 40, 35, 40,000 downloads wow. a month. And some of the yes. listeners are also newer, you know, whatever. So, so let's, you know, even define some terms for those folks and in the various industries, what are the different ways evaluations are done? How, how are they, and you know, and then how they've been impacted by these various factors we've been talking about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Our, our firm, you know, I, the way I think about it is there's kind of three legs to the stool in our valuation practice. We do, we do a fair amount of valuation for financial reporting. So companies that have audited financial statements need to value, value and revalue different assets and liabilities that go on the balance sheet to support their audits. All of the underlying analytics is very similar to a normal business valuation. It's just used for balance sheet purposes. The, the second area that we spend a lot of time on is tax compliance. Yep. You know, there's companies granting stock options are required to do valuations. There, there's a fair amount of estate and gift tax planning going on. I actually think this year there could be a really interesting opportunity with depressed valuations for people to move assets out of their estate. Yeah. And take advantage of market volatility, higher interest rates, lower asset values. And we're, we're hearing a lot of estate planning attorneys and business owners talking that, you know, this year may be a really neat opportunity, you know, a neat opportunity for that. Um, and then the third area, which I think is probably the most interesting for your listeners is we do a fair amount of advisory valuation. And it, it's everything from one partner wants to buy another partner out yep. and, and they need a basis to sit down and negotiate a deal to help me prepare to raise money, help me prepare to sell my company, help me make a decision. Do I sell my company or do a transaction this year? Do I do a transaction next year? What if I wait five years? Sort of this whole decision support metric. One of the things that I, I think are really enjoyable valuations is when when people come to us and say, I'm look, I'm tr I've, I've got a good business. I'm trying to figure out what to do. We do a baseline for them in terms of, you know, what's it worth today? Yep. And then we help think about what are the things that we can do to improve the value? And, you know, what are the things we can do to improve the value of the company? If I go make acquisitions, what, what, what does that look like? If I do this, what does it look like? If I do that, what does it look like? If I raise money and give up some ownership today, but how much faster do I have to grow to have that be accretive to me? And there's a lot of different kind of scenarios that we can run for business owners. And then you, you're in a situation where what do I have to believe today to make this be the absolute best, best decision for me and what I'm trying to accomplish? And we can help people. We can help people sort of quantify that in their own mind. And those are the really kind of fun and enjoyable projects that we work on that that can make a that can make a big difference and one of the things I've learned over the years doing these things is that it's it's when you when you sit down with a business owner and listen to what they're trying to accomplish and then the decision they're trying to make you know it all makes sense but then if you if you really put pen to paper it's like hey actually Everything has to go exactly perfectly for the scenario you're talking about to be best. It, you know, have you thought about this risk and that risk and this mm. issue and that issue and this idea and that idea? We've often been able to help change, change people's minds to either take a more aggressive approach or a more conservative approach or turn left or, or turn 
you know, or, or turn right. And one example, one example comes to mind. We, uh, we were working with a company and it was in the retail technology space and they had really, they had a really nice business, very stable cash flow, positive, stable and steady. And there was a investor group that wanted them to raise money and invest in the next generation of technology. And then there was another investor group that was like, Hey, we should just sell this and let someone else take that risk. Right. And, you know, there's kind of a heated debate among the investor groups. And so we worked with the management team and we modeled out different scenarios for each. And it was like for the raise money, develop new technology. These are the three or four things you have to absolutely believe to be true today to have that be a better decision. And then for the other people, for the other people that kind of wanted to just sell the company today, here's the three or four things that you have to believe for that to be true, um, for this to be the best decision. And it really created an interesting discussion at the board level so they could make the right decision for what they were trying to accomplish with the company. And it was not the decision they ultimately wound up with was not necessarily what sounded like it made sense on the surface, but getting into it and doing some more research was was really helpful. And so I think a combination of this stuff is you know doing the valuation research in terms of where the public companies are trading, what other transactions are taking place in the market, what does the buyer landscape look like today, you know, et cetera, to to really get a basis for the value today and and the direction the industry is going and the likelihood of a sale. That's kind of one piece of it, which is sort of the traditional valuation work. And then the second piece is, you know, doing some scenario analysis on the financial projections one way or the other to sort of stress test the different outcomes. And so there can be some really interesting discussions and insights that come out of those types of analyses. Yeah. You know, I, I love that you stress that because obviously, yeah, there's that part of valuation that is whatever, you know, looking at all the factors, running numbers, and I don't want to minimize that. It's not as simple as plugging some numbers into a spreadsheet. It's a complex process, you know, where, you know, every valuation firm has a different, you know, how do they weight the different factors? And, you know, and I talk to clients all the time because even, even first of all, depending upon the industry, you don't even know what multiples you're using. We, we've been talking about EBITDA multiples, which is very, probably the most common, but, you know, there are, you know, annual ARR, you know, annual coming revenue in, in certain in certain yeah. industries that on house value, you know, there are certain industries we use this discounted cash flow analysis, whatever it is. So the methodology is different, but also, you know, there are so many factors. I mean, right, that go into it. I mean, for for certain businesses, you know, growth rates, right? You know, we we do a lot in financial services and wealth management. They, you know, the valuations firms in those in that industry look at average age of clients, like the client relationship, yeah, right? The, you know, you, of the you client, know, the clients the, are all eighty-five years old. They're, they're not as valued as clients who are fifty-five yeah. years old. You know, yeah. We, and and it's interesting in the in the consumer space, particularly like direct to consumer e-commerce space, a lot of the metrics are are not necessarily revenue or EBITDA at all. It's what does it cost you to get a client and yep. lifetime value, cost of acquisition, lifetime value, retention rate you know, upsell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Th- those are very significant, you know, value drivers where two companies that have a similar kind of growth ramp and trajectory, one has more valuable customers than the other. It's worth quite a bit, you know, it's worth quite a bit more. And so kind of peeling the onion couple layers can be, is, is really, you know, important. Some, and you alluded to software, 
Some software companies trade at four times revenue, some trade at 12. And you really have to kind of peel the onion a couple of layers and understand the underlying metrics to, to understand why. So, you know, valuation is part science and it's many times it's as much an art project as it is a science project. Yeah. So I love it because you handle all that complexity. But then what you were pointing to is that on top of that, you provide, you know, really important strategic, you know, consulting and advice, right? Where it's like, okay, so now, now we have numbers and, you know, and if we're just valuing for the purpose of an acquisition, right. And, you know, and we're in a certain industry and we're going to apply certain multiple certain factors. Okay. Th there's that, but you're also providing that strategic consulting to say, Hey, let's analyze, you know, some of these numbers and let's, let's figure out how we help you make business decisions based upon some yeah. of these analyses and factors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is great, which is fantastic. So listen, Jenny, I could delve into any one of these many topics that we've we've raised for hours more, but we are coming to the end here. So before I ask you my final question on the podcast, tell, listen, I'm sure people are going to be interested in hearing more about what you do. You provide on both sides, the valuation side and the investment banking side, such you know great services for quality clients. Where could they find out more about you? Yeah, I, mean, I think the easiest way is to go to our website, ObjectiveCP, as in CapitalPartners.com, and our con our, my contact info is on there, as is everybody else at my firm. So that, that'd be the easiest way, easiest way to learn more about us and really appreciate you having me. Perfect. All right. My final question on the podcast is about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people in the world from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and I haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? I started on this entrepreneurial journey as a founder of a firm about 20 years ago now and really enjoyed not really enjoyed not having a boss and you know like the the freedom to figure things out on my own and you know sometimes i've made colossal mistakes and sometimes it's worked out well but i have no one to blame but the guy i see in the mirror every morning and so there you go you know i really i really enjoy that and then i think that the second freedom that I spend a lot of time thinking about as a entrepreneur or a leader is we all have a choice for what we commit to and what we delegate. And when I find myself in this place where I'm like frenetic and crazy busy, I have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> and there's a, there's a cartoon that I have on my desk that I got from strategic coach. Yep. And there's a, there's a picture of a person with their office door closed and a big stack of paper and they're like working away. And there's a note on the door that says, leave me alone. I have that. I, I have a week of work to get done in the next four hours because I have the time management skills of a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> and so I always, I always think that the, the, the freedom, we all have the freedom. It's just a matter of choosing what we commit to and what we don't commit to. And I, that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. Love that. Love that answer. Channing Hamlet, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, 
Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.